Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live, the show where I sit down with incredible humans and I do everything I can to unpack their brain with the goal of helping you live your dreams. Today's guest is Nabil Ayers. Now, Nabil is many things, among them an author, an entrepreneur, a record executive. And that's where I'd like to sort of focus in why you should care about this episode. We all are multi-hyphenates, and you're going to hear about the person who is now the president of Beggars Group, the label that has legendary bands like Radiohead and The National, Grimes, and dozens more that are absolutely legendary and impactful in the music world. But where Nabil really stands out is his ability to share stories and insights from his childhood through a mixed race where he knew, despite being at a small liberal arts college in Washington, that his life was meant to be different than many of those in his peer class. It's a very fascinating story how we unpack the labels that we carry, how we truly ought to be able to pursue the things that we know are what we see for ourselves in our hearts. The ability to manage all this, to cut his way from starting a record store at a very young age in Seattle to now being one of the top executives in a music industry and having what I believe will be a New York Times bestseller on his hands. It's a brilliant book, tons of insights. And if you were raised with a single mother, if you are of mixed race, if you are a person who put your dreams on hold in order to fulfill the life that someone else had for you, or the other way around, if you were managed to flip the script, this book and this particular show is definitely for you. So um, I confess that I am uh, longtime friends with Nabil. I think that makes this conversation even more interesting. And I can't wait for you to, to tap into it. So again, I'm going to get out of the way. Yours truly in conversation with Nabil Ayers. Hey, today's episode of Chase Jarvis Live is powered by Creative Live. That's right. If you've been subscribed to the show for a while now, you know all about Creative Live. You heard me talk about it. It's in the books that I've written. You know that it is the best way to learn skills and explore your curiosities with learning from the leaders in every creative discipline in entrepreneurial space, from photography, video, design, to building an online business and ultimately living the life of your dreams. It's all possible with a Creative Live subscription and you're taking a big step right now. If you go check it out at creativelive.com slash creator pass. That's right, C-R-E-A-T-O-R-P-A-S-S. Now for a little more than 100 bucks, you can access the entire Creative Live library with more than 2,000 classes from the world's top creators. So where do you go to get this offer? Again, go to creativelive.com slash creatorpass, C-R-E-A-T-O-R-P-A-S-S. New classes are added every week and we're always streaming content for free if you wanna check it out. Please let me know what you've learned most recently. I'm always interested in hearing your stories and I'm happy to amplify and give you a high five on social if you tag me at Chase Jarvis with what you're learning. So beyond that, let's get back to the show. Nabil, thank you so much for joining us, rejoining us again, second second appearance on the show. Thanks for being here, bud. Thank you for having me again. It's nice to be inside without dogs. <laughs> and for those of you that didn't hear his last uh, episode recorded a couple of years ago, we had a good privilege of being outside with, uh, you were like dog sitting or something at the time. I don't remember. I was at a, I was in LA. That was early days pandemic summer when, you know, I still didn't know what I was doing with the computer and all that. And I was, uh, I was at my father-in-law's house in LA and he has two crazy dogs. And I was like, Oh, I'll just do it outside where it's mellow. And they were just all over me the whole time. It was it made, super it, crazy it and distracting. Made for fun. Um, yeah, well, uh, just uh, by way of introduction, I will confess that we've been um, friends, I'm guessing like, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. I don't know what the actual, yeah. actual number is. Um, and there are a, another, a number rather of reasons that I'm always excited to have you as a guest whenever you are willing to come on the show. Um, one is you have led a wildly creative life from um, birth to current, which is uh, captured in most recently in your memoir, which is called My Life in the Sunshine, which is an incredible 
absolute page turner. Uh, it's fun to, to know someone socially as we know each other. And then to read the details of your life has been <laughs> extraordinary for me as the host here. Um, but not only have right. you lived a, a creative life, you talk a lot in this book and we've talked previously uh, about things like racial tension, about music, about your job in the music industry, you know, uh, yeah. helping um, other musicians and creators of a bunch of different walks of life find their way. You are a very accomplished entrepreneur in your own right, having built, um, you know, an amazing uh, record store brand in Seattle, a legendary. So, you know, I find the people that I'm most attracted with and connect with are, you know, have, have these crazy, um, backgrounds that don't fit in a box and they are multi-hyphenates. So, uh, for those who don't know, that's the background, but on my side, but I'd like to put a pin in that. And, and how do you, let's say you're going to be on the NPR podcast or, right. you know, Conan O'Brien or all these other various places where you are, um, you appear, what do you, how do you introduce yourself in those universes? Interesting. I mean, if I had to just like choose a word, I've usually said entrepreneur yeah. because to me, it's not all, you know, it's not all as, as capitalist as it sounds, but it's definitely all related to business, if that makes sense, but in a very creative way. But being in a band was absolutely a business, even from the youngest age where I was trying to charge a dollar for people to come to my show. That That's a business. You know, a record store is obviously a business. A record company is a business. So all these things, while they're creative and, and fun and cool, are still they're, they're businesses. And so to me, I'm an entrepreneur, I think. Awesome. And yeah. let's... let's um hit on a number of those things in a little bit more detail. I rattled a few off. You just rattled a few off there, but <laughs> maybe let's work backwards. Um, or we let's work the other way around. Let's, let's start from, so charging a dollar, you know, we've all got these stories as not all of us, but many of us, uh, especially yeah. guests on the show have some story of, you know, I did the same thing with the film. I made a film with the super eight camera, put flyers up around yep. the neighborhood. So let's go from these early, <laughs> yeah. can I get a dollar for you to come to my show to, uh, yeah. you also have what would ostensibly refer to as a day job in the record industry. But let, let's walk, walk me through all those again for orientation. And then we'll get into some of these uh, very nuanced topics that you talk about in your new book and things that I've been dying to ask you since you were on the show last time. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think early days when I was a kid, I loved music, was always into music. My mom and my uncle played records all the time, um, went to concerts from a super early age, started buying records myself when I was five, I think, which is pretty young and was definitely young then. Um, and and also always understood in some way that there was a business to it. Not, not literally understood, but I noticed that my Kiss records and my Village People records both had a Casablanca logo on them. And I didn't know what that meant or how they were connected, but I knew that there was something there and I paid attention to it. And, um, and I think kind of the story I was just telling where, you know, I wanted to play music, wanted to play in a band and tried to put on a concert in my living room with friends and also charged a dollar. And at the end of the concert, we split money. And that is a smaller version of, of what I do now running a record company. I mean, it's really a very remedial version of the same thing. So I think I always kind of somehow understood the marriage of the sort of business and the creative parts and was interested in both and ended up kind of chasing both throughout my life. You know, same thing in high school, playing in bands, trying to sell our demo tape at school the next day. Um, but in college is when it really kind of started to come together more. There was more opportunity. This is early 90s outside of Seattle. So great time and place. Um, I had an incredible record record company internship which is hugely valuable where I learned a ton um, played in a band that, that wasn't successful or anything, but like played real clubs and put out a CD and, and learned a lot about the business from that. And, uh, and even just going to college and, and the sort of the social aspects of that and putting on parties and hiring bands and all that kind of stuff to me, it all fed into to what I do now, even though I think a lot of people see me as having done a lot of different things, but I think I've just done one thing, which is, that <laughs> it's all of these sort of music and business things that tie together. Um, and so that's, you know, I think my first real job was working at a record store, which is maybe hardly a real job, but that really, really fed into the next phase of my life, which has led me to where I am now. Amazing. 
I think there's wisdom in that. On the outset, you would look at, you know, working at a record company and going to college and creating experiences, parties, whatever, hiring bands, you know, those, I think on the outside, those might seem uh, as all different activities, but that's to me, the insight is, you know, you can look backwards and connect the dots and it's a very obvious, right. seemingly obvious now um, looking backwards that how it all is all connected. And that is the thing I would encourage a lot of people to do. They think they've not really been on a path, but when you start to look backwards, you can, you can see a path. And so by extension, that is my question. If you were to describe the path that you've been on now, I mean, I don't, again, know, do you identify as a writer now? Is this the new career for you despite running a record label? And if so, is this a twist in the path or is this just another experience of, you know, manifesting your creativity within the industry that is, you know, that you right. cited was influential to you from the age of five? Yeah, I think it's it's both. It's it's definitely it's a twist, but it's not a deviation. If that makes sense, it's it's a cool new opportunity to sort of branch off and explore something new. But I I would say it took me a while to describe myself as a writer, which I do sometimes now because I've been lucky enough to write for the New York Times and Rolling Stone and some crazy big outlets. Um, so that's, I think once I had a few of those under my belt, that's when I said, oh, I can actually say I'm a writer. But what I haven't said yet, and what I will say when this book is actually out, is that I'm an author, <laughs> which apparently is different. <laughs> yeah. So so that's exciting. But but to me, it's, it's, it's more similar every day. And to your point about kind of, you don't always necessarily know what you're doing when you're doing it. But I think the key is to just go with your gut and think about, does this feel right? Does it feel good? not always thinking about the end goal. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about those things when I was DJing at a college radio station or spending more time booking parties and booking bands than I was studying in college. But now my friends who are doctors and lawyers, they did what they needed to do to get to where they were. And I did what I needed to do to get where I was. And they both worked. Mine was just a little more looked down upon because I was spending money to go someplace and not do <laughs> what I was ostensibly there to do. Um, but it's all fine now. But, but I think, yeah, I think the key is to really to stop and look back sometimes and realize, oh, interesting. These are the things that got me here. So maybe I should worry less about, about these sort of specific little things ahead of me and just think where I want to be. And if I'm doing something that I like and that is important and that is creative and that satisfies me and makes me happy. And hopefully that will get me to a place where I'm, you know, whatever blank making money or getting whatever it is that you want sort of, you know, not always easy, but try to think of those as the sort of secondary goals to, to just doing what you love. So if I'm, uh, one of the listeners and I'm sitting in traffic or I'm on, you know, on the subway or on a walking path somewhere right now, listening to this, maybe at my desk, one of the things that I'm curious about is how strong was this signal? You talked about a thread being music, loved it as a young age. And then we went, you know, we fast forwarded to you now and you're able to look backwards and see that even your writing is connected to your love of music and right. passion around it. You decided you called yourself an entrepreneur. So how strong was that signal and how aware of it in the moment were you? And I ask this advice for someone who's on this walking path or sitting in traffic right now. Because presumably there are signals that are in their life that they're not listening to. And as someone who I think has had just this an incredible both career and life arc, which you chronicle again in your new book called My Life in the Sunshine, how strong was that signal? And uh, I'm going to have many follow-up questions to this. So yeah, choose, choose wisely. I, I think I was really lucky and that signal was like an 11 out of 10. I think it was impossible for me to even ever consider doing something that didn't have to do with music. And that's from as far back as I can possibly remember. My uncle gave me a drum set when I was two. I've been playing music every day since. Um, but it's not just the, the playing of me. I actually, sorry, I take that back because I'm not playing music right now. But but again, the fact that music and sort of working with and around music are, are tied together to me. Um, but that was it. When I went to college, the reason I went to college near Seattle is because Seattle felt really musical. There are venues everywhere and there are incredible record stores and you could just tell like, oh, this is 
a place where there's a lot going on. That's why I'm going to go here. And, you know, I went to normal classes like everybody else, but, but still every choice I made, like interning at a record company or DJing at the radio station or playing in a band, like that was all, there was nothing else I ever thought about doing. And when I finished college, this was 93, which it's funny to explain this to people now, but it was a relatively easy time to get a real job, air quotes. I mean, lots of my friends coming out of college, you know, went to go work for Boeing or Microsoft or accounting firms or, or went to grad school or whatever. But it, I could have gotten a decent paying normal job after college. And I knew that and it scared the shit out of me. I was like, I, I can't do that. If I do that, that's going to stop me from doing what I want to do. And I don't know exactly what it is I want to do. I know I want to play in a band. I know I want to work in the music business. I'm not doing either right now, but what I am going to do is work at a record store because that will probably get me closer to at least figuring out those two goals. And that I was lucky. That's exactly what happened. But, it, you know, that was a it was a big moment to decide, wow, my friends are like moving into nice apartments and buying suits and doing all the things you're supposed to do. And I am living with roommates in a pretty crappy place working at a record store. How about that dissonance? How about how about the dissonance there? Like, I think that keeps a lot of people. That moment keeps a lot of people from their dreams. Or right now, people are looking back at the moment where they, you know, chose to go that different, that different path. Mm -hmm. Did you have some special fortitude? Was there just a blind blind faith? Was it a oh I have a I have a plan B? Like help help us explore this a little bit. Like if you were aware of it. You know, yeah. what, what gave you the strength to persevere or, or did you even, did you sort of <laughs> have what I might call a relapse or I, I mean, I don't know. Right. No, it, it was, it was blind faith. It was, it was the ability. And I mean, I, I sort of kept things within my means. So I moved into this house in a crappy neighborhood in Seattle, like deep, scary part of West Seattle back then, which was not nice at all. And, uh, five of us lived in a five bedroom house with one bathroom. We each paid $154 a month for rent. And I worked at a record store, probably making $8 an hour. And because I worked at the store, I got to go to every show for free, got tons of free music, got to go to lots of parties and eat and drink. So I sort of designed my life around, I can do what I want. I don't need to make very much money and everything's fine. And so oddly the fallback was to just get a job. But I never had to, <laughs> which is a funny way to look at it because that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, but see, this is the this is the thread that I'm pulling on, and I find that you know it's helpful, hopefully, to orient the most, you know, the 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 largest number of listeners that you know didn't always know, or you know, it wasn't this right. certitude, or the certitude was filled with doubts, and you know, it's clear from your book that there were doubts that you had along the way, um, experiences that made you, you know that made you pause some of them, you know, related to the business, the viability, um, whether mm -hmm. you're going to be a musician or in the music industry, you, you talked a yeah. lot about, you know, uh, your experience, um, uh, with race. And I think there's an interesting, I should share this subhead to my life in the sunshine is searching for my father and discovering my family. Um, I'm going to put a pin in that also as we wrap this loop up, but that's maybe I call that foreshadowing. So we'll, we'll foreshadow yeah. this, but you know, the, the last bit of exploration on, on your path of working for $8 an hour, not working <laughs> above your means, you know, having a strong signal being, it sounds like willing to sort of do what it took because it was a very different path than most of your friends. Right. And yet, um, you know, you said, I'm going to just play your own words back to you. We weren't a, the band you played in. We weren't a success. But was that really the goal? Was the goal? To, you said a number of times in the book and here in the show already, I wanted to be in a band. And mm -hmm. yet you ended up, you know, uh, owning a record store and you ended up as right. a music executive. So this is part of what I find when you trace anybody's journeys is like, Hey, look, if you just get as close as you can to the things that you love, right. you may, you might discover that the thing that you thought might not be the golden goose and something else near adjacent, you know, um, just close to it is 
a home run, but you don't know unless you're sort of in in the soup. Right. You, it, have, to get, it, you have to get close. In the soup. Yeah. So I, I want to hear that in your words versus my sort of jumbled. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's the thing. I mean, I think that's it's always been clear in my life, and I think it's clear in the book that I wanted to I wanted to play in a band and I wanted to be in the music industry. And in my head, of course, it made sense that I would play in a band first and be in the music industry later because I'm less likely to be wanting to drive around and set up drums every night or even have somebody set up drums for me if I were so lucky. Um, you know, obviously that's the path most people take. You play in a band, then later you go work for a label. So that felt logical to me. The interesting thing about it is so I was always pushing, I was, I was in bands until my mid thirties, like actively touring and playing and recording. Um, but I was always, the business part was always happening. I opened a record store. I have my own small record label. The, and the one thing that I sort of regret, but not fully regret is that I never fully committed myself to playing music. I don't feel like I actually did. I felt like the bands that I joined, I loved still good friends with all the people in those bands, but I never I sort of got lucky and fell into all of those bands, which was great. And that's an easy thing. I'm a drummer and that's a very common thing. You know, drummers leave bands and drummers get replaced. So I fell into really great situations, but I never had to really try super hard. I never said, you know, I'm going to move down to LA and find the best band in the world, or I'm going to find, I'm going to steal people from this band and together we're going to start the best band in the world, or I'm going to move to New York and do it, or I'm going to do something. I still kept it comfortable enough that I could keep a foot in the music industry stuff. I was lucky enough to have a record store. Um, And I I always, I'll wonder, I'll probably always wonder if I could have just been in the best band in the world. You know, I don't mean the biggest band in the world. I mean, a band that I thought was the best band in the world. But (laughs) the big but is if I'd done that, there's no way I'd be doing what I'm doing now and I do work for the best label in the world, and I work with some of the best bands in the world, and I think I have less regret now doing what I'm doing about not playing music than I think I would have if I'd chased music and were looking at this, wishing I'd done this, if that's not too complicated. No, no, it's uh, thoughtful and I think a very interesting response. So uh, for those who are obviously very curious right now, you've piqued their interest. Please share a little bit about the label, you know, some of the bands that you work with. I, I know these names and these people and, right. and lo- love them. So, uh, but share if you would, because I know people are going like, you get to work yeah. with some of the best bands in the world. Tell me more, Nabil. I know, right? I, I will. And there's even, there's a development that you might not even know since the last time we talked, but uh, I started uh, working for the label 4AD, legendary British label who, you know, when I was in high school, put out records by Pixies and Cocteau Twins and sort of really important groundbreaking bands back then and um and later you know breeders and so many great bands and i started in 2008 in new york as the head of 480 us which is a pretty amazing place to start at the top basically (laughs) um and so i've been there 13 years which is crazy same job same boss many of the same bands we've put out i think four national records since i've been there five tune yards records three grimes records three Future Islands records, um, three Big Thief records. It's really, you know, several Deer Hunter records. I don't even know how many, like so much great music. Three, four St. Vincent records. I mean, lots and lots of music that I feel so lucky to have anything to do with and to have met and spent time with these people. Um, And the crazy thing is, this is what you might not know. So 4AD is one of five labels that are part of the Beggars group. And Beggars is sort of this parent company, um, which is, not some crazy corporate entity. It's owned by one person. It's very private and, and independent, truly. Um, but the other labels are, it's 4AD, Matador Records, XL Recordings, Rough Trade Records, and Young, which, you know, especially group-wide, just an incredible roster. Same. But I worked for 4AD specifically until um, my good friend, Matt, who was the president of Beggars US and worked there for 24 years, stepped down in January and I jumped into his spot. So I'm now the president of beggars group. What? Meaning I work across all five labels with even more bands than, you know, everybody Radiohead and Arca. And (laughs) I mean, it's, it's insane. Wow. Congratulations, (laughs) man. Thank you. I remember that just happened a couple months ago. I don't remember getting a text. (laughs) Congrats. Sorry about that. I had to drop something on the podcast, you know. Yeah, yeah, just bring some secret in here. Wow, that's yeah. 
That's huge. So right now you have, there's people Googling your email address who are listening right now. They want to get their records. <laughs> right. But but the funny thing is, this is the funniest thing about that. So I ran 4AD for 13 years and my job wasn't to sign bands, but I was very involved in that because it's not that big of a label and I ran the American office. So whenever we were signing somebody, you know, I would talk with them about how the office worked and explained everything. Um, but now that I'm the president of beggars, it's actually a lot more, it's a big step away from the creative stuff. I'm not working as closely with artists, not working as closely on record campaigns. It's a lot more finance and people management. We just hire, you know, hiring people, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's sort of, it's a bit more businessy. I mean, it's still in the same building with all these incredible people and, and even more artists, but I'm a, a big step removed. So I'm getting way more like, oh, you need to sign this band emails because I have a president title, but I'm in a way smaller position to do so, which is the funny part of it. So I'm like, yeah, you should, you know, talk to the labels. They're the people who sign bands. I just, I oversee how all the records come out and how it works, but I'm not really, not really doing that. Is there, do you lament that step forward? Ostensibly no, a step I mean, it's, forward it's, in your career, but a step. It's a step forward. And I feel incredibly lucky to have been at this amazing company for 13 years where I thought, I mean, I started as the head of the label. So in my head, there wasn't, you know, there's nowhere else to go. And weirdly, there was turned into this, this crazy left turn into this different role. So I'm in the same place with the same people, but doing something completely different, which is great. It's, it's challenging and super interesting and really hard at times. And that's what I like about it. I, I think fondly of a, a couple things. Um, one, I don't remember where we, we were sitting in a, hotel bar somewhere in New York together. <laughs> oh, I remember at Bowery, Bowery Hotel in New York. Yeah. And was it St. Vincent or was it Grimes or mm -hmm. someone just walked up? It was Annie. Yeah, it was St. Vincent. Yeah. St. Vincent walks up, but we, we you know, just, it was a fun, I'm like, I know this person. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, Very New York moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then we went out to sushi afterwards and right. where was that? I forget who we bumped into in sushi. That, well, we saw Jake Gyllenhaal there <laughs> and he, uh, he pointed at my wife over my shoulder and I couldn't see who he was because he was right above me, but I saw his hand like this and he pointed at her and he said, are you ready for the revolution? And she just had this crazy look. <laughs> I remember how he walked like, out and I was like, who is that? And she's like, oh, it's Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> that was a trip. I remember that yeah. sushi joint too. That was fun. Great New York night. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you do get to work with a lot of people who are at the pinnacle of let's call it the craft of music, maybe, mm. maybe even the craft and, uh, and the business, right? They're, they're at the intersection right. of those things, which is part of why they are, they are, what are some characteristics of the pinnacle that you have witnessed from your, what I would consider very unique perspective of getting to see so much music, the intersection yeah. between art and commerce and what are, you know, what are the characteristics that, you know, and, and in a weird way, you do talk about some of these characteristics that are recurring themes, even though the book is mm -hmm. ostensibly about your life, you, these, there are right. these things that emerge. I'm wondering if you can share some. Yeah, I, I think, I think there's one big one that I get in, into a lot with people because, you know, having worked at a pretty big independent record label for a long time, but never really at a major label, which is, a totally different thing. And I can't say that all independents operate one way and all majors operate in a different way. But but by and large, the thing that I've noticed, and not just the labels that I work with, but a lot of the independent labels are completely driven by music and the love of music. And of course, that's not to say people don't like hits and selling records and making money and doing all that. Of course, everybody loves that. But most of the labels that I know, the independent labels, would never go out and say, this band is going to be huge. I don't really like it, but I think they're going to be huge. So I think we should work with them. People will certainly recognize, oh, I think this band might be big, but we don't like it. So we shouldn't be involved. That wouldn't make any sense. Whereas I think there are some major labels that are absolutely in the business of this is going to be big. That's what we do. Let's just figure out how to make it work. Who cares? And I'm not saying that's not possible. I think it works every day. But the interesting thing about these independent labels, I think, and, and really the people who work for them and the kind of this tradition that's been handed down almost is like, you shouldn't involve yourself with anything you don't love. And it's really like, and I'm talking about working with bands and signing artists. Um, 
And, you know, of course, the best case scenario is you sign something you like and it does well. But even if we sign something we like and it doesn't do well, at least we put out a great record and we gave somebody hopefully a shot or hopefully somehow help them in their career to whatever the next thing is. Whereas if we put out something that we didn't like that we thought was going to do well and it didn't, well, then what do you have? <laughs> Just have this thing that no one liked that also failed, which is the worst possible scenario. So I feel really lucky to have been... I've had that really ingrained in me in the 13 years that I've been here. And I've also seen it a lot in, in my peers and in, in people kind of in parallel positions where it's really all about just working with things that you think are great and hopefully that working and doing it for that reason. Small leap here. We're going to go from that statement of working with greatness, wanting to do things with great people. And let's go to a, a moment in the book that we were speaking about before we started recording, which there's a small twist in here that my, uh, the, a girl I dated in high school was actually in the room and you were referring <laughs> to, you were referring to, you were sta yeah. standing in this room at college and having a, what seeming, I don't know if you'd orient that around a different set of values mm -hmm. than other people who are also sort of winning um, you know, getting pats on the back from the college. Right. And and so in many ways, you're the same, right? You're all at college and doing your thing. But in many ways, you are different. You have chosen a different path. You, you know, and this, this is a pathway to us getting to some of the race issues that you share about in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and how are you both on the inside and the outside? And what, you know, what, what can we learn from that moment? Yeah, that, that's funny, that parallel. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it completely makes sense, the conversation we just had to that moment. And that, that moment in the book is toward the end of my senior year. In college. Um, yep. In college, yeah. My, my whatever, advisor pulled me aside and was like, look, you've not been a very good student, which was true. I was a terrible student, but I did. All, and I, I said, yeah, I, I know, but I've DJed at the college radio station. I started this thing called the Campus Music Network, where I found all the bands on campus and got a budget and put them in the studio and put on concerts and did all these things and had a record company internship and put on parties. And, you know, that that's what I've been doing for the last four years. And I know my grades, they do reflect that because <laughs> I was spending my time on all these things that actually being here gave me the opportunity to do. It's just not exactly what the prescription was to do. So he said kind of said like, yeah, I know. And I'm putting you up for this award, which is of course reserved for like, you know, 4.0 students and people who are doing the thing you're supposed to do. So, um, so I went to the ceremony and I remember looking around and thinking like, oh, these are like, these are, I don't even know these people. These are like the sort of cream of the crop 4.0 students who do stuff. You know, they're not at the parties I go to, they're studying. And, uh, and your high school girlfriend was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. And I won this award, and it's called the Oxholm Award for Superior Service to the University Community. And what normally I wouldn't care that much about that something like that, but what I loved was that there was this person there who actually did recognize. Because I think in college I spent a lot of time struggling knowing I was doing the right thing and how hard it was to do the right thing because I'm getting C's and really stressing and staying up all night to write a paper that's just okay all of that just so I can keep doing the thing that I think is right so it was really it was really validating to actually get that and have someone say hey I saw what you were doing and you were doing the right thing that's what it felt like is there is that a recipe you would prescribe I'll I'll share an anecdote um, so that we have not just your illustration, but yours plus another. And I think they, I think they're talking about the same thing and then I'd like you to reflect on it. So there's a character, a friend of mine named James Altucher also lives in, uh, New York. And he, uh, told me a story about his daughter did not get into a bunch of the colleges that she wanted to. And so mm -hmm. rather than taking a different path of going to a college that was, would maybe accept her, but uh, that she didn't want to go to, she said, great. And said, I'm going to go become a race car driver, which is the craziest thing that she could think of. And so in training and yeah. training, you know, and taking driving lessons and, you know, like not dissimilar to yours working in the industry, um, this, at some point it was either, you know, continue in race car, or she said, you know what? I think I've learned that I don't want to be a race car driver, but this experience 
hmm, that might be interesting to talk about. And so she shows up then at college and this in her college essay, it's about becoming a race car driver. And every college, when she applied the second time, was like, I want some of that because that yeah. is unique and different. And if yeah. you look at that story versus the one that you just, or I guess not versus, but alongside the one you just shared mm -hmm. about you know, the distinguished service to the university being something that did not look like someone who did not look like most of the other people in that room looked a, right. a profile of what you spent time doing your grades relative to that profile, all these things you weren't supposed to do. But the, you know, the punchline that I always like to say is you can't stand out and fit in at the same time. So which do you, right. which do you want? And I'm wondering if you can reflect on, you know, on that moment of being, you know, an insider outsider, uh, um, you know, it's, it's in a way it's hack, it's hacking the system. And the way you hacked the right. system was you trusted this instinct that you had. Yeah. I think hacking the system is a really good way of putting it. It, it was there to do whatever a, B and C and I struggled with those things, but did them well enough to allow me to do whatever DEF or mm -hmm. <laughs> whatever you want to call it. But, but I think that's an important thing to recognize. I think there are a lot of people who are at my college who are like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. So this is what I'm doing. I wish I were doing something else, but I'm here. So I'm going to go to class and study. And I, I don't think you have to do that. I think you can do even somewhere between that and what I did. I might have been extreme in that I really stressed myself out. When I think about college, I still have school anxiety dreams. Um, I remember showing up. I have the dream where you, you know, I mean, it's a common dream, but the dream where you, it's the last day of the semester and you haven't been there for four months and it's time for the final. Like all that stuff um, happens to me all the time. And that's a result of literally doing exactly that, of really just scraping by. So I think there might be some middle ground. I don't know if I'd do it exactly the same way, but but I think that's a really important thing to recognize and to try to recognize while you're in a situation is that whatever it is, a job, you know, a school, you don't have to do it exactly the way it's supposed to be done. You don't have to completely reject it. You can try to figure out some middle ground where you do what you need to do and also make it work for you and make it sort of make it yours more. The I think the the biggest mystery around what you were able to do through that lens, this is like the, the personal journey lens, if you will, was mm. to maintain this belief, this awareness that you were doing, you said it three or four times in the show, the right thing. And right. How, was that an implicit, was that trust implicit in you? Is that something that you got from your relationship with your mom? Or was that like, where did that come from? Because so huh. many people lack this, this sort of um, moral true north or this intuition to, that they can yeah. trust themselves and that everything will work out. Where did that come from you? Was that part of your childhood? Or was that a learned belief? Where did that come from? I think and I can only answer this now, this way, I think it came from my father which is a segue into a whole nother story because mm -hmm. a lot of the book is about he's my father, but I've never really known him. We only met a few times when I was a kid. This was always the plan. My mother was young. She was 21. And she said to my father, who she dated a few times, they were not together. She said, I want you to be the father of my child. You don't have to be around. I just think you'd give me an amazing kid. And he said, yes. And I've always known that that's been the deal. My mother's incredible. I have tons of respect for her. I had an amazing childhood. Um, and my father remains not part of my life. I've met him a few times. But in, in writing the book, and not, not so much as a research project, but part of what sort of got me and kept me going in writing the book was that all these things started unfolding in the last few years. Um, and one of them is when I started meeting a lot of his relatives, my relatives, my aunt, his sister, who was obviously very close to him and who I've become close with, cousins and people. And all the stories they tell me about him especially as a kid, are so similar to the way that my mom will talk about me as a kid, which things like, you know, he had this job at a department store and everyone loved him, but he would go play music at night and show up the next day late. And so he got fired, but everyone really liked, you know, lots of stories like that, that sound to me like, and I wasn't there and these are secondhand, but he knew that that's what he wanted to do. 
and he tried to sort of live in this normal system. Um, but whenever it didn't work for him, he didn't say, I'm going to quit music and get to work on time the next day. He went to music instead of the job. Obviously, that was the obvious choice. It did, I, I don't know this for sure, but it sounds like and feels like, literally feels like, that was the only thing he knew how to do. He didn't even have to question it. And so I think it came from him. And I also think that my mother doesn't have that kind of drive. She's, she's amazing, but that's not, that's not who she is. That is, I guess, therein lies the genius of this book and why I absolutely recommend that our listeners and watchers get a copy of My Life in the Sunshine, Searching for My Father and Discovering My Family. Um, the, the genius of being able to look backwards and connect the dots about some of the things that the father that you didn't physically have, but now you're able to say, Oh, I definitely had a father because he had all these influences on me. Right. And, and you, un, it, the story unfolds in what feels like a very, uh, it's obviously genuine and authentic. People can get that just from hearing you speak, but the, um, I expected it to be more dramatic and you have this hmm. matter of fact. And again, these are expect expectations that when you're like, I, I know just enough right. about your backstory, um, you know, even the, the matter of fact way that you approach and it's revealed in the book that your mom said, Hey, look, I'd love to get pregnant with your baby and there's no strings attached. I think you'd just be incredible. And, and they <laughs> essentially agree like, yeah, sure. That seems like a good plan. Yeah. And, and she gets pregnant and goes off and has you know, has you. So, yeah. you know, the, the, the casual sort of matter of fact approach to it. I'm wondering if that was, um, if you masked some of your true feelings about this, or if that is how it has been for you. And, you know, and it, it, in either case, why? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, there's certainly some masking. I think there's this protective element growing up. I mean, the first 10 years of my life, I lived in really, so I'm, my father's black, my mother's white, single mother, only child, um, which would have been, you know, weird some places, but we lived in these really incredible, safe, diverse communities in New York City and Amherst, Massachusetts, and places where I wasn't a weird kid in any way. There are plenty of mixed race kids, there are plenty of kids of color, there are plenty of kids without fathers. It really was not a thing. So that was an incredible sort of base to have for my first 10 years. Um, but I think after that, when we moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, which was not that, then suddenly I definitely stood out <laughs> juxtaposed. in lots of ways. Yeah, juxtaposed. Yeah, you know, every, mostly white people with five kids and both parents and everything. So I think there I started to develop sort of a, a protective shield that I felt I had to. I don't know if enough things happened, but, you know, I would just say, oh, yeah, my parents were divorced. Like things like that, that, that don't seem like a big deal at the time. But like, I always knew the whole story about my mother and my father. And I, I started to feel really bad. I think it wasn't until college that I finally started telling people the truth, which takes so much more energy and leads to so much more conversation when so really just their divorce is easy because no one asks more questions after that. Whereas the real story just, it takes time. And you get, but as much as I got tired of telling it, I think it was important and is important to tell because it's a testament to my mother. And I felt like not telling that story was a discredit to her. So, but there was a long time, there's a lot of masking. And I think I'm sure there still is some, but at the same time, the matter of factness partially comes from my mother and uncle, the way that she talks about it as if it was just like, yeah, I knew what I wanted to do. I met him. The second I met him, I knew he was amazing. And I knew he'd give me an incredible child. I didn't want a relationship. That was the whole thing. I saw him and I felt it and we did it. And everything was great. And here we are. And it, it wasn't quite that simple, but she's always told it as if it was. So I think I inherited some of that, which is like, well, it might be a crazy story, but didn't ever seem like it to me. You know, that, that uh, that's part of the beauty of the book. It's, it's sort of, it does a great job of, and does so very uh, expeditiously with just writing that chapter. It's like, great. And, and then onward. And I think mostly that, well, as, as you know, it might not have been that easy course, to get to that course. point, but I'm glad it comes across no, that but, way. <laughs> and, you know, Brene Brown calls it gold plated grit, right? You don't want right, to, you, right. you can 
oh, this is, yeah, it was so easy. You tell the hard part and then you're like, and then right on to the next best stuff. But, right, right. but you know, and, and so you're, you're Im- implicitly sort of aware that there's, there's more there. And that is sort of what creates this page turning book, which is also now you talked about your childhood. I think it's an interesting, um, uh, moment for us to bring up, obviously the juxtaposition between, you know, very diverse, inclusive neighborhoods in New York and your mm-hmm. experience as a mixed race kid with, uh, living with only your mom in Salt Lake city, Utah. Yeah. Which was, which was, I mean, I think looking back was really good. I mean, I, I, I point out in the book and I think this is a strange point, but I think it's true, but Salt Lake was was so family oriented and so relatively safe, even though there are some weird things that happened there. Generally, really beautiful, great place, and people were so open and so accepting and so kind. And I think I expected worse, and I was always afraid some kind of you know overt, horrible, racist thing would happen to me. And it, there are plenty of like little things and meaning whatever people messing with my name or wanting to touch my afro, which unfortunately I don't have anymore. But um, lots of that, but no like serious, serious stuff. And part of that might've just been luck. But I also always thought that because there are so few black people in Salt Lake City, that that weirdly made it so that people weren't scared of black people in Salt Lake City. I think that the stigmas and the things you saw on TV didn't exist. And it's certainly not a good thing or a bad thing, I th- but I do think it was a thing. It was so, I think I was just like, oh, he looks interesting. I don't think people were threatened by me. So I think it could have been a lot worse in Salt Lake. Um, I think Seattle was worse, which is a much bigger, you would think, cooler city. But because it is slightly more diverse than Salt Lake, I think it was a little weirder there. Well, let's keep pulling on that thread because I think your your relationship with your history and your ability to talk about it is... It's, it, it seems, it is unfolds so seemingly effortlessly in the book. And that's part of why I wanted to speak with you about it. And it's, right, it's right. there's an incredible power that I haven't experienced before. And that, uh, that, you know, the storytelling that you've, you've shared with us in this book. So juxtapose this yet again from New York to, to, um, Salt Lake and let's go Salt Lake to. Seattle. We can work in there, Tacoma, which is a city that's south of right, Seattle, right. where you went to, co- yeah. to college. Um, but you know, handle that as you wish. But you know, juxtapose it yet again in a new yeah. environment where you know you, you're you, you mentioned race being sort of amplified. Right. I mean, Tacoma almost didn't count because I was, you know, UPS where I went, University of Puget Sound, is this small liberal arts college with 2,800 students and this, you know, beautiful little green campus in the corner of town. And this is in the early 90s. So Tacoma was a pretty scary city, like with real gangs and real crime and things. But I, was, I wasn't part of that. I was on this 90 something percent white campus, just living my preppy life, putting on shows and playing in bands. So, so it almost didn't count. But Seattle, you know, I lived in Fremont and Wallingford and Finney Ridge and these sort of very white liberal neighborhoods, which which were great. Um, but what was interesting, the way it comes out in the book and what made me finally think about it as I was writing about Sonic Boom Records, the record store that I opened with my partner, Jason, which we opened in 1997. God. And I started thinking somehow about incidents of race or, you know, r- microaggressions that I experienced as a non-white store owner in a pretty white city. And I, the first draft of that chapter, there was a line in there that said something as simple as, you know, I didn't experience a, a lot of racism as a business owner in Seattle. And then I was like, huh, let me start. Let me just think if I can think of any times. Oh, there's that time when the, the mayor came in who was white and the, you know, his aide pulled me aside to take a picture of me and the mayor, but not Jason. And then that ended up in their campaign flyer. Like it's, you know, racism so interesting because that wasn't anybody calling me a name or doing anything bad, but it was certainly a racial incident where it was to that mayor's benefit to have a picture with me going as campaign flyer to these liberal neighborhoods. So there are things like that. And there were, there was like the time when the store was broken into once and I showed up in the middle of the night and the cash register was broken in pieces on the floor and the cops were on the way. And I had this internal voice that said, don't be standing here over the cash register. They'll shoot you. 
go outside, meet the police when they pull up, introduce yourself, show your ID. That's what I think to do. That's probably not what Jason, my white partner, would have thought to do. That's not his fault, but that's just, he would have been like, oh, this is my store. Um, but I had a different thought process. So I was just going through sort of making lists of these things that I thought about, and there were so many of them. And so the first thing I did is I crossed out, <laughs> deleted the top sentence that said, not much happened. And then I just started going into it. And, and the number that's in the book is, you know, it's small, you can't include everything. But I just think it was a, it's really easy to live in the moment and protect yourself. And when, you know, whenever someone came in and was like, Hey, Nabil, where are all the black women in Seattle? And, and I would just think like, oh, well, first of all, I don't know. I don't think there are any, but why are you asking me as if I should know something like there are so many things like that. And it was really easy for me to just say, Oh, whatever. They didn't mean anything. They're, you know, they're, they're a nice person or whatever, which, which all might be true. But when you sit back 10 or 20 years later and say, let me try to think of every incident, and then you come up with a huge list, that's when I really realized, oh, actually, a lot more happened than I remember, at least than I remember allowing to affect me. It, it's so beautifully um, laid out in the book. The storytelling is incredible. And, Thank you. And um, it's just the treatment is, is, is very special. What was your creative, you. what was your creative process as someone who, as a musician, I know you as the drummer from the long winters, another friend of ours, John Roderick, that was right, the right. band that basically had some member of every band that's ever been in Seattle has been <laughs> with the long winters. Um, it's true. Uh, but you know, as someone who I think of you as a musician first, and you started sharing your writing with me long before you ever had a book deal. And I was like, fuck man, this is really right. good. And, oh, thanks. um, you know, first of all, I will, I think it's so cool that you're able to jump genres and bring, um, you know, new things, which to, to, to the new genre, which is what I, I love. And it is a very consistent pattern of all the people that have been on the show. They're bending genres and, you know, combining them. And, and so that is a, you, you fit right in there. And, I, right. and, and yet the creative process for everybody is different. And I always like to ask guests, like talk to me about your creative process in writing this book and, and yeah, like why a memoir memoir and not a, you know, a, why didn't you take the rock doc angle? Cause you were, you were a, <laughs> right. a rocker. Why didn't you take the, my life right. is there a, are plenty of those stories that didn't make right. it. <laughs> my life as a music executive or, you know, right, why, right. why the, the path that you chose. So creative process, yeah. creative process. And then, you know, I think a lot of people, you were bold, just say like, this is my life. And whether it right. was interesting or not interesting or like all, all those things, they never seem to be a piece of the puzzle that I know behind the scenes know of, uh, mm -hmm. of your experience. You just started writing your life as if it's obvious that it's it. Any life is interesting. My life is interesting because it has, a, but it could be argued that shit, when you look closely, everybody has a fucking story. So right. try and make some yeah. sense of first the creative process. And then what I'll just call the soup that I've, you know, now poured, yeah, yeah. Off, poured out on the mean. table. <laughs> I mean, it started about, weirdly, I'd never been a writer. I mean, I loved writing in college. And actually, those are the, the only A I got was in a writing class in college. And that wasn't because I really applied myself. It was because probably because it was more creative and maybe felt more like music. It was really fun. I really loved it. I went to every class. I did every assignment. And I got an A. It was amazing. <laughs> so so it's kind of always been there. But then I didn't write for 20-something years. And, and weirdly, it's a long story, but when I was in a band called the lemons and this amazingly is only a paragraph in the book, it's not a big part of it, but uh, this is in 1995 when I was super young, the band went to jail in the middle of the desert in Utah with three and a half ounces of pot, which was a lot. It was felony possession with intent to distribute. It was a ton. We had like real jail time hanging over our heads. It's a long, long story. We got off. Everything's good. Um, Cause we were able to hire this incredible attorney that a high school friend put me in touch with. So, I told the long version of the story a hundred times since then and told it so many times that it was really, really fresh in my memory. I could remember what the handcuffs felt like and what the desert smelled like. All of that was like as if it happened yesterday. So I was on a flight from New York to London 
maybe five, six years ago now and was bored and wide awake and had a lot of time. And something told me, I thought to myself, I just need to write that story. It exists. It's so fresh in my memory. I feel like I'm just going to start typing and just see what happens without, I'm not trying to publish it. No one ever even needs to see it. I just want to write this for myself and for fun. So it exists. And I did. And I had so much fun while I was writing it. And I spent the next few days in London. I would stay up late and sort of research things. And I would find like, oh, weird. This is, that's the date that the EP came out. And we were in St. Louis. Like I could find things online. It turned into this crazy research project. And when I got home, I'd written like 80 or 90 pages, which is a lot. And, and I remember thinking like, huh, well, I still don't want anyone to see this, but I think I have a new interest or a new hobby or a new something. So I went to a memoir writing class, this thing that met every Monday night from seven to 10 and, uh, and loved that too. And it was, you know, it's a lot of reading other people's writing and a lot of reading, but the first part of the class always started with a 30 minute free write where you had to sit there. You could not stop writing no matter what you did. And so after 10 weeks of that, I just had tons of stuff and it was stuff about Sonic Boom, my record store, stuff about my bands. It was a lot of like, you know, fun things. And it was right about the time I started dating my now wife, AJ, and she used to be an editor and deep in the publishing world. And she was the one who's like, yeah, 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 this is all fine. You need to write about your father and you need to write about your race because that's what people will care about and that's what you care about. And I remember thinking like, ugh, first of all, I know she's right. And that's what the ugh is for because that's that's the hard stuff. That's personal. That's deep. That's revealing things. That's not like, oh, I went to jail and I opened a record store, which, which are fun. And they're all in the book too. But but that stuff. So I was in a phase where I was like, I was so into writing that I just started going to uh, this beautiful library space near our apartment called the Brooklyn Historical Society. I would go there every Saturday afternoon and write for like five or six hours and just write about my father and think about like, well, we've only met five times, but let me write each of those times up and try to really remember what I felt like and what he looked like and where we were and what was going on and, and did that. And then when I ran out of those, I started writing about all the times I could remember hearing his music and sort of being surprised by it and what it felt like and all that. And eventually, this is all just on a laptop, but in my head, creatively, it was super visual. And what I imagined was this really long, wooden, thin table, you know, like a 20-person dinner table, with little stacks of papers, and each stack was one of those stories. And so there's one from when I was two years old that my mom had told me about. There's one from when I was 10 years old and I met him. There's one from when I was 35 and we finally had lunch in Seattle. And I saw them all with these gaps between them. And I thought, oh, if I were to fill in those gaps, then I would have a book. And it, I wasn't trying to write a book, but I realized, I think, oh, I've done so much of it already, and I'm having such a good time doing it that I feel like that should be the goal. And so that's really where it came from. I don't think I could have sat down and said, I'm going to write a 300-page book, chapter one. <laughs> I think that would have been impossible. I think the fact that I'd sort of tricked myself into starting it is what made it work. I'm going to use a loaded word here um, and then I will contextualize it. And the word is trauma and we've all got it. We've got small, small T trauma, like, you know, not, not getting picked for the sophomore basketball team <laughs> or big T trauma, all of the things that you can imagine go along with big T trauma. And we've all got all of those things. And that is not a, I'm guessing if you search the, the manuscript, that word probably doesn't come up at all. And, right. and yet there's this undertone of sort of managing, you know, our, you, you, in this case, you managing your awareness of just the story that you told about, oh yeah, I never was, you know, treated badly as a person of color and a business owner. And then you're like, well, wait, right, wait a right. minute. So here's this, un, is this you know, peeling of the onion and starting to reveal all of the spicier yeah. bits inside. But I'm wondering, has the writing process, have you, do you believe that that has been therapeutic and or helpful? And so by extension, I'm making the question, has your art, this new, you know, the writing piece of your art beyond music, the writing, has that been therapeutic? And if so, um, you know, what can you say about it? Yeah. It absolutely has. And the trauma thing is interesting because you're right. The, the word trauma is not anywhere in the book, but 
but the vibe and the feeling absolutely exists throughout. And I think there's, there's a point when I'm about 35 and I live in Seattle, I finally decide I want to get a hold of my father. We meet and he, you know, he replies and we have this amazing lunch and we get along really well. And I see all these similarities in, in him and it's incredible. And I'm 35 and, you know, already successful and independent and certainly don't want or need anything from him. And so in my head, it's like, wow, this is great. Not that there was a problem before, but now there's really no problem. Now, like, we should do this once a year. Not like, oh, let's talk every week. But like, in my head, I was like, oh, this is great. We could actually connect every once in a while. That would be fun. And what happens is that doesn't happen. And that is the first time I start to feel truly sort of upset and rejected and all the trauma stuff starts to come out that I never felt, but absolutely felt then. And I remember feeling it, but I don't remember feeling it nearly as much until I wrote about it. Mm. And so writing those two chapters, which I don't think I did at the same time. I think I wrote the sort of happy, like, wow, we met and it was great chapter. And then it took a while to write the next one, which immediately follows it because it was soon after that he comes back to Seattle, but totally blows me off. And so it's like really the opposite. Um, But, but writing about it made it feel, it made it feel much, much worse Meaning like, I think I did the sort of protective brush off Mm -hmm. thing in real life. But when you dig into it and force yourself to be back in it and really, I mean, all the sort of writing tricks that I sort of either knew or invented, which are like, remember what that room looked like. Who were you there with? What were you wearing? What did it smell like? What did you drink? Like, these are all the things I would try to do just to put myself back in the moment. And doing all that made me feel terrible. But I also loved it because it was this weird this weird act almost of like wow it's incredible that you can put yourself or that I can put myself back in this space and I think you know in the end it's it's a happy book and it's very up and I'm thankful to my father for everything that I got from him so all of these things having the ups and downs and writing about them helped me get to that point so that's sort of the the long-winded answer is absolutely therapeutic absolutely difficult and absolutely worthwhile my life in the sunshine congratulations on an absolute gem of a book i I can't remember the last memoir that i read that was so touching on so many different and and it's Uh, probably certainly because we have a relationship but I, i know for a fact that uh this will do very very well in the market and it was incredibly fun to read and there is so much insight and the storytelling and especially for the particular audience that listens to this show people who identify as creators and entrepreneurs and are curious about following their love and passion and who have been you know insiders or outsiders and many combinations therein of you know where you're an outsider where you want to be an insider and you're insider where you don't give a shit you know so many of these (laughs) permutations um it's just incredible and it's always a, a treat to have you on the show for those who um might want to learn more obviously you can you know get this wherever books are sold um, where else would you steer folks if they, I know you, you do write for the New York times and, um, yeah, and, and I think, Rolling I mean, the Stone easiest and... place is right. Just my website, which is nabilairs.com that just has a super simple in order, most recent to oldest of all the pieces I've written. That's all sort of cataloged in one place. So that's probably the best place. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah. And thank you for having me. It's, it's always a pleasure. It's great to hang and talk to you. I appreciate I it. I wish we could have done it in person. Dang. I know we will. Let's do it soon. I, I, I know we're you, be you were out here for uh, a wedding not too long ago. I saw post facto. Yeah. I actually wasn't here either. So it uh, would have been nice to see that. But the next time, looking forward to seeing you and AJ and, yeah. and um, enjoy your book tour too. So for folks out there, we're going to release this episode the week of your publication, which uh, oh, awesome. tends to you know help authors the most. And you will yeah. at that point be talking book tour. So um, just yeah. why don't you read a, read off the cities where you will be showing up in in case people want to. Oh, let me think. They're not in front of me, but it starts on June 7th in Brooklyn where I live. And it hits LA and Palm Springs and Seattle and Milwaukee, Chicago. Salt Lake City has to be in there. And then London and Paris. That's what I know now. We're adding more dates, but that's the, that's the meat of it in June. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, congratulations. Yeah. It's 
Thank staggering you. work of genius. I'm grateful to have you on the show. And, uh, and until it. next time, see you soon. Yeah, until next time from to everybody out there who's listening and watching, just want to take a second, say, check out Nabil's work. And until next time from he and I, we both bid you adieu. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show and or Chase Jarvis, Creative Live, any of that stuff on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. I want to take a second to say thank you. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive, positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing the show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Together.